Hello there, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World. Sorry about the delayed intro there. I just want to make sure that this setup is actually working because last time it wasn't and we lost the first 15 minutes of an epic interview with Yell.com. And so uh, if you are tuning in on LinkedIn, drop us a message on the chat there. Let me know that it's all working and we're live and kicking. Same thing if you're tuning in on YouTube. Welcome to VUX World. I am in a slightly renewed uh, filming space. It's not quite the end result. There's a, we're going to have a, a, another setup here once I've uh, finished it off. But here we are. I've managed to finally move into my office, which I've been uh, dreaming about for the last five and a half years and working on for the last God knows how many months. But here we are. <laughs> Uh, so thank you for, for joining us today. We're going to have an epic conversation. I'm going to welcome out in just one moment Sham Aziz, who is the head of customer service at Selfridges. And we're going to have a very good conversation about generally the, the state of AI, the current potential, future potential, and thoughts around how to utilize artificial intelligence, large language models, and things like that for the purposes of improving customer experience, improving customer service, uh, and much, much more. As always, if you do have some questions, please do stick them in the chat, and we will do our very best to answer them. If you are not registered to our webinar this week on Thursday, I suggest that you do just that. We might touch on some of the topics at a high level in this conversation, but on Thursday, we're going to be showing you specifically how you can blend together large language models and traditional NLU-based, intent-based systems to get the best of both worlds and actually put large language models into practice. If any of you are at the Voice and AI Summit or if any of you have been working on this stuff for the last number of years, like we have, you will know that it's not just as simple as, as giving a large language model a bunch of PDFs and sticking it live on your website in your way to the races. There is a lot more involved than that. And actually, in some cases, for some use cases, large language models models are all, not always an ideal choice. However, if you can harness them correctly and find the areas and the capabilities where they do perform well and consistently, you can get some great value from them in some important use cases. So we're going to be joined by ServiceBot CEO Cathal McLean on Thursday, and we're going to get into detail about that. So if you want to register, which I hope you will, you can just go to vux.world, click on the events tab, and you can register there and then to be there live and direct this Thursday. Uh, but now... The main event, it is now time for me to welcome Sham Aziz from Selfridges. Sham, welcome to VUX World, my friend. Hey, thank you, Kane. Much appreciated. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. From sunny Hertfordshire you're in right now, is that right? It's less sunny, but it's more Hertfordshire today. Um, <laughs> yes, indeed. Fair enough. It's certainly more sunny than it is in Harrogate. This morning, I basically was reluctant to take Winston out. I actually didn't end up taking Winston out. Gemma took him out. Um, it was just completely pouring down and it was just a, a, a nightmare. So by the time I actually started work, it was still so bad that Winston hadn't been going out. So that's that's the situation in Harrogate. So I trust it's probably a lot better than, than, uh, than it is over here. Indeed, indeed it is. Um, I don't have a Winston, um, but I do like to go out myself. Um, I've not managed to do that so far today. Fine, fine. Fair dues, fair dues. Uh, well, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself then, Sham. You had a lot of experience in, in the kind of customer service, customer experience field. Um, tell us a bit about yourself and your, your background. Lovely. Um, so accidentally on purpose, um, fell into customer service circa 22, 23 years ago. Um, took my first call center job after college. Uh, working for a bank, and um, these were in the days where it was just phone calls and faxes. Um, some people won't know what a fax is, but you could Google that later, and if you'd like to see one in action, YouTube's a good bet. Um, and then from there, 22 years on, customer service all the way through the call center world, e-commerce brands, retail, bit of SaaS, couple of different things, day-to-day -day operation, the tactical project work, and then overall strategy, where are we headed, how do we get there, what do we need to get there. And so just customer service through and through, um, just fell in love with it, fell in love with the open plan nature of the office, um, the breadth of roles and watching the industry develop into what I'd like to call a career path, um, not just mm. a pass-through job. Uh, and for some it is, and that's okay, but... For others, it's a lifelong career, and so uh, I've stayed in it and continue to do so. Mm, nice. And even, you know, from the point of view of, like, the team that you have um, and 
kind of getting into that space as you said some people see it as almost like a pass through job but the reality is actually there, there was a there was a study done uh, I think it must have I can't remember if it was this year or last year but it was it was um, I think Contact Centre Weekly might have been it that did a study that was looking at the challenges that customer service faces obviously attrition being one of them people finding the job quite challenging and not sticking around uh, finding talent in the first place was another top challenge you know like how do you encourage people to come on um, and, and 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 work there and then the other thing was managing workloads so everybody's got far too much to do and too little time to do it but one of the interesting pieces of analysis in that study was that it was looking at the day-to-day activities of somebody that works for example in a call center and it's just actually tremendous about the level of skill that you do actually need. You need to be computer literate because you need to be able to understand various different systems. You need to be able to get to grips with multiple different systems. You need to be able to know through and through lots of different areas of the business, all the different business processes and rules, all the different pricing and products and all this kind of stuff. Also, then you need to have empathy because you need to be able to understand the perspectives of the person who you're on the phone to and genuinely want to help them. And then you need to be a little bit thick-skinned because <laughs> you might be getting some abuse. And so it's it kind of like, it kind of, the summary was basically like a lot of contact centers try and recruit entry-level people. But really the job itself is not necessarily an entry-level job. Actually, it's a pretty skilled job. I wonder what your thoughts are on on that. Yeah, I mean, I love the, the list of things you just described. And there's probably a second part to that list, which is just as long as, as the one you walked through. It reminds me of the early days of entertainment. There was that one person band, I don't know if you remember where they have a, a harmonica and they have some tambourines and they have a drum attached to their back and they've got, you know, some maracas and a couple of different things. And they basically pull a whole song together from all these instruments. There's one person um, or the other analogy would be, you know, a circus act where somebody's spinning multiple plates and whilst they're doing it, they decide to juggle and pet a lion that's next to them or, or whatever other analogy you'd like to throw in. There's absolutely a bit around almost being okay with punishment and that sort of empathy part, right? Because probability is, depending on where you work, your brand, your business, your proposition, that more, more than uh, likely is that you'll deal with customers that are either a little bit lost or they're a bit unhappy. Um, you still get the ones that call through and they're very happy and they want to give you feedback, but you know they're few and far between in the grand scheme. And so those that are getting in touch typically have a problem, so you're going to have to want to problem solve. Uh, you're going to need to be resourceful and sort of work your way around. And So I don't necessarily see it as an entry-level job, but I have seen globally in different markets that in some cases it's uh, – it is an entry-level job and it's something that you do as part of your journey. Um, and in other markets, it's quite held in a different level of prestige in that you work with in an office environment, even if it's a call center. But in order to get into that type of call center, you know, they're sort of targeting graduate level and above master's students, PhD candidates. And so I've seen the globe over that the level of a call center job is different. And I think maybe, you know, we might get into this on this episode that in in future um, with the opportunities through AI automation and other things that we might unlock a new candidate pool of people that want to go through a call center. Um, and this idea that I've not fully developed yet, but the idea that working in a call center should be a prerequisite for anybody that's going to embark on a career um, it's almost like a mini MBA. You know, you go through a call center, you learn about problem solving, you understand about how to navigate multiple systems, knowledge bases, solve problems, um, add value, uh, make customers happy. All of these things are transferable to any other career and or uh, a future business that, that one might want to put together. Mm, I can see that. I, I agree with that, actually. Like, I, my, one of my, in fact, my first job was working in a shop, just a corner shop. And through doing that, you, know, you, you, 
you can't help but get exposed to the the traditional and typical perspectives of working on the ground floor of a business, which is that customers come first, customers always right, customer, 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 customer. That's what it's all about, basically. And I genuinely think to this day that from the period of where I was, I must have been 15 till maybe 17, something like that. So it wasn't very long, but that period instilled in me the whole concept of customer centricity, which I still have today because nothing else really matters unless you're doing and, and putting your efforts into making things better for people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's that base foundation layer. Uh, the customer is always right, asterisk, except when they're not. But even then, you find a way around that, right? And so yeah. I think there's, there's there's an element of understanding the relationship between a customer, the product, service, or experience, and the end user. And in that case, it might be a customer service team, your sales team. could be anybody, anybody that's interacting in between the brand and the customer. All of those things together um, is what sort of goes on to create success. And I don't believe that any one party should have a larger piece of that sort of prestige or pie. It's, it's all equal. Yeah. It works together. When those things are aligned, that's when you see success. Yeah, definitely. We definitely want to get on to um, what you were alluding to there, which is the potential future looking roles that may exist in there. Because the... The contact center was once, and customer service in general, I suppose, was once kind of a cost center. It's something that a business has to do because people need a way to mourn, basically. And then the rest of the business views it as kind of like almost like an inconvenience, you know, like customer service and, and customer experience people, like they're calling back to the business, like, look, hey, here's a bunch of problems, you know, like we're finding out what, what's really going wrong for customers. Like we're really an insights center. But then business, the business generally sees it as a bit of an inconvenience, whereas now that seems to have changed, which is that actually not only it's not a cost center, actually it's responsible in many cases for being a revenue center. It's responsible for producing the very insights that businesses are built on, foundational customer insights that you can base all of your business models and strategy on. And so I'm wondering if you could maybe share a little bit of your perspectives over the last 20 years or so in terms of how that change has happened and what you've witnessed the the trend being in that kind of going from cost center to revenue center and, and, and the rise of the importance and, and business understanding of it? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And everybody who does my job, has done my job, or is aspiring to do a job within customer service at a, a relatively senior level, they'll all be very well rehearsed in what's a cost center versus a revenue slash profit center. Um, and so, you know, in traditional finance terminology, profit and loss shortened to P&L. Uh, and often the story is you want to be a bit more P and a little less L. Um, and in customer service, your default starting point is L. Immediately, with any sort of startup business, customer service almost becomes an afterthought, right? You are excited about your product or service that you're going to launch. You put it out there. You think it's amazing. You love it. And then suddenly you start getting questions and feedback. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to deal with these because I know the product the most. I built it. I designed it. And then after about 50 customers, you're like, uh-oh, the maths aren't working here. How am I supposed to deal with this? And so you then start bringing on people to help you, and that's where the customer service team is born. There's very few brands that I know that start with that in mind where they say, we've built a product. It's not yet launched, and we're going to build our customer service team at the same time to grow as part of this journey. And so... I think over time it's changed. Um, however, you know the, the the birth of customer service was necessity, not it wasn't proactive. Um, and then people like me who do do the role that I do realize that in order that we're not necessarily playing a unit game every year when it comes to setting budgets and trying to um, get money to run our departments, that we're giving something back to the business, whether that is profit in this case through revenue whether it's insight that can drive business decisions and success elsewhere. Um, and the part there is whilst you might not directly drive revenue, how can you track your um, contribution towards revenue so that you can call it out to somebody and say, hey, we played a part in this. And so when we come knocking for more budget, we need that budget to continue doing this role. 
And so there's that bit around P&L um, and the movement over the years has come from the rise of, you know, the role of product. Um, so when I say product, not a physical product that you buy, but the, the product function or department within a business that, you know, comes along and designs uh, something and then sort of figures out how to deliver that. And what so I've seen with the, the product community and the product world is that they absolutely get and understand that you need customer feedback to iterate what it is you're designing. You need some way to test what you're designing and you need that feedback. And they very quickly um, realized, hey, there's a whole custom service team here that are talking to hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of customers a year. We've got free data, like we, it's there. Let's go and query it, let's interrogate that data. Let's predict where these product features and focuses are going to go. Um, and suddenly, you're not just trying to do A-B testing or um, predicting, you know, the sort of well-trodden paths. You have this whole data that you can query and look into. Um, and I often say in most businesses, no matter what systems you have in place around monitoring and alerting, your customer service team and your customers are probably going to be the first two, three people that are going to identify your problems before your alert systems kick in and, and figure out there's an issue. And so, you know, the finger is definitely on the pulse. And I've seen more recently that product teams are tuned to that. And um, things like what I do, and many people in my role do this, is we take execs into the call center, we take them to the shop floor, so to speak, and they spend a day on the floor, they listen to calls, they monitor social channels, they see what customers are saying, and suddenly um, they see the value in what the contact center is and you know, customer service team and what it, what it can deliver. So there's now less argument about the, the P and the L. Um, however, you know, the, the gold metric level where I think we need to get to is how does it specifically move the retention needle so I think if you can partner up with like a marketing team and demonstrate an impact on retention, that's when you're really solidifying your seat at the table. And that's where customer service comes along and says, I add value here and you could start to drive the business. Um, and that kind of environment is going to be much more attractive to um, people who want to come and stay as a, as a longer career, not just for those that are passing through. And so, it becomes a more interesting environment to want to be a part of. Mm, definitely, definitely. Um, you're talking about adding value. Just try taking it away and see, see, see how quickly it comes back again. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. So, so talking about the sort of like the last, I don't know, X number of years in, in moving from cost center to, to profit center and stuff like that, there, there's been, Obviously, there's always change going on. There's always new technologies occurring. There's always kind of markets shifting and stuff like that. The pandemic was obviously a massive challenge for everybody. What do you think is, like today, some of the biggest challenges facing customer service organizations? Interestingly, they haven't moved. It's the same problems for the last 20 years, actually. The hardest thing about a customer service team is the people. They're trying to attract and retain the best possible people. And once you bring them on board, like you painted earlier, that picture of having to spin a thousand plates, they're still spinning those plates even now in 2023. There are multiple systems to log on to. Those systems don't talk very well to each other. Um, and then we're trying to sort of figure out what the customer is saying. And at the same time, it takes 27 clicks to log a case of what the customer is talking about so that you can then get reporting out the other end um, so the challenges haven't necessarily changed, but it's a lot more noisy today than it used to be. So we've gone from trying to solve some of those earlier problems. I'll give you a real example around uh, Wismos. Wismos within the call center industry stands for, where is my order? This is probably one of the most common queries that customers have when dealing with e-commerce brands typically. And uh, once upon a time, it was very difficult to find out where your order was. You'd need a tracking number. You'd need perhaps access to the carrier that was delivering this product so that you can go and track that information. There are many carriers. There are different formats for tracking numbers. And so uh, some technology providers found a way, as did the carriers themselves, 
to provide self-service tracking tools for customers, but they're all very different. And so if I'm a customer, I don't really have an incentive or an easy way to go and track my order. So I'm just going to go back to the retailer, retailer and say, where's my order? And then the retailer is going to say, okay, for well, one second, which carrier was it? And there's eight portals and I'm now going to go find your tracking number and then I'm going to go track it. And so we sort of had a go at self-service. It didn't quite work. And then the call center inherited that. And now they're the ones that are trying to serve on the customer's behalf. And it's not quite the right experience. And so I think in today's noisier environment, the same problem hits twice as hard, right? Um, and so there's still a way to go. And I guess for the first time in a long time, with some of the movements around AI, um, and I want to be careful how I say this because it still depends on how you implement these things and, and, and what you do with them, but it feels like we're starting to get to a place where you could perhaps pull some of these things together. I mean, imagine a world where there was a, a large language model that was all around tracking deliveries. Well, if you just made it the best possible model ever, and then it didn't matter where it was coming from, you just went there to track your order. Whether you self-serve it or you go to a brand and the brand knows who you are because they have your details, you come through, and the system already knows, well, if Jan's calling you, he's got an order due, it's probably about that. I'm just going to flash the tracking up and either he's going to tell you that on the call and you're going to tell him or um, he's not, but I'll just leave it here for you in case you need it. So there's a bit around how do you get to that space. Once upon a time, that didn't sound like it was possible. It felt a little bit minority report or the matrix, but mm. I think for the first time in a long time, that feels like it's not that far away. However, the um what's the word appetite and the budget i yeah, that's probably the still two hurdles that we might need to scale um or jump over to, to get to that sort of final mile yeah i mean what you described there is is entirely doable today without large language models to be honest the the, the challenge is as you kind of alluded to it's the, it's the technology challenge, which is not the technology, the AI technology, the understanding of what someone's saying, passing reference numbers, doing lookups into systems to find out order statuses, all that stuff is entirely doable. The challenge is actually the systems behind the scenes being difficult to integrate with. Yeah. You know, I don't know what Selfridges uses. I'm not expecting you to tell us, but like some retailers may use three three different delivery services, you know, different distribution warehouses in different locations that got different types of stock that are all processed slightly differently. And so it's kind of like the challenge really is consolidating that technology in order to present a consistent customer experience. Because if you can consolidate the technology to make it easier for your staff, all the AI is is just a layer on top of it, you know. So it sounds as though what you're saying is that one of the bigger technology, one of the biggest challenges today is a technology challenge. Is that fair to say or not? Yeah, yeah, I did absolutely say that. I probably said a lot of things. Um, but yeah, te technology is absolutely a piece of it. Um, you know, technical debt, sometimes it's referred to um, because if a retailer's been around for a while, uh, 10 years, 20 years plus, uh, then there'll be lots of different systems trying to get them all to talk to each other. So having layers, having APIs, having messaging systems that travel between all of these to bring all of that information together quite tricky, uh, very expensive um, to replace if you want to replace. Um, often there are long contracts in place as well. Um, and so it's not as simple as, well, we'll just bolt on this next layer. And so sometimes, whether I've understood it rightly or wrongly, if there is somewhere else that you could go to that doesn't necessarily have to heavily integrate with all of your systems, whether that's order management, warehouse management, any other management system that you have within your business, if you could tie in to some of those external facing service partners like a delivery carrier network, um, maybe you can achieve that without having to rip up your technical debt or replace it. And so my thought process was, well, if I can't replace all of this, how do I augment it a little bit and get to the same end result? 
Um, in theory, with a newer startup or a scaler, they're not starting from a position of technical debt. And so yeah. for them, it's probably faster and easier if they have good early design practices in place, that what they build is already quite, you know, well-made and agile and flexible and, and can move with their needs. And so I think some of the, uh, the, the longer standing retailers need to consider whether they need to replace everything or whether they can augment. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a case of like over time when the opportunity arises, making the right steps. It's not as if a company as large as Selfridges is going to just rip up all of its contracts that it's got in place and all of its partner delivery network and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's the case of like as and when contracts come up for renewal, making decisions that are in line with the vision for the future. Like I remember when we used to, we used to do a lot of work with government and part of what the government digital service did, which was when the government websites used to be like loads and loads of different websites. And then they, they funded a team called GDS. They got together and consolidated all of these websites into one website, which is now gov.uk. They built all the journeys around that and stuff like that. And, and they essentially put in some standards that they mandated across the whole of government. And then I was working in local government at the time and we were kind of getting wind of this stuff, but not it wasn't forced on us sort of thing. And so during the process of, of going through various different cycles of digital transformation initiatives and stuff like that, we ended up actually taking a version of these design standards and implementing them in the part, the, probably about 12 organizations I was working at that time. And one of the things was from, we're not going to, we can't rip up and throw the baby out with the bathwater today, but what's going to happen over the next 10 years is contracts are going to come up for renewal. And so the technology code of practice is, is saying that when a contract comes up for renewal, when we purchase technology, it needs to do these things. And one of those things may be that it needs to have APIs that we can interrogate, push data into, pull data from, so that we can then do whatever we need to with all of the data that you have, which is difficult to do now because if you're in a contract with, like I, I bought some blinds from, I won't name the company, but it was one of those online blind retailers, bought the blinds, didn't hear anything for about six weeks. I was like, what on earth is going on here? Like, why, uh, why <laughs> what's going on? So I reached out and uh, they couldn't give me an update. So I ended up calling. I was like, why can't I actually get an update on where this order is? And they were like, well, it turns out that we, we basically make the blinds in China. Then they put onto a ship and they're sent to some place in Europe. Then some of them are put on a plane and flown here, but the rest of them are put onto another ship and then they're sailed here. And it's like, we and they're like we don't know whereabouts it is. <laughs> like it could be on a ship in China, it could be in the, on a plane over Spain, or it could be like going over the Bay of Biscay. Like it could be anywhere. You know what I mean? And it was all yeah. because the distributors and the delivery stuff that they were using, they don't have any way of communicating what's going on, what's coming off in the states. And so it's kind of like slowly but surely over time, trying to align your procurement to get things in the right direction, but it's not a one person thing, isn't it? It's not as if you're going to click your fingers and it happens. It's a, a organization wide, multiple stakeholders, different levels of the business. It's a very complex thing to deal with, isn't it? I, I like the idea of the principles that you set out though. I think you're onto something. If we can get that sort of put in place and, you know, any future services that we procure must meet these criteria and these criteria are built together with, uh, people from customer service, from IT, from product, from procurement, everywhere basically, everywhere that has yeah. an interesting customer, that uh, together you build a set of principles so that as and when things are up for renewal, are they still fit for purpose? Um, if something new comes along, does it meet this criteria? Um, and then also just having that confidence or capability to understand if something game-changing comes along and questions your criteria, that you at least take a look at it and just figure out, should I should I have a look at this? It doesn't meet my criteria. Why not? Is it relevant? Is it going to help our customers? Because um, I think that's where, with, with a rigid set, whilst it provides structure and enables you to build for the future, you might miss out on innovation if you haven't thought about it. And so... I guess I'm trying to have my cake and eat it because I, I want rules and then I want a back door to enable something to come in if, if it doesn't meet those rules. And so I guess um, that's the interesting thing about 2023 and these times, right, that 
um, you know, we're having conversations like this around what we want now and what we'd like it to be ideally in the future. And so if anything, it tells me that we're in a thriving time, even if it's difficult for different macro and microeconomic reasons, that um, there's problems to solve and wherever there are problems to solve, there'll be people trying to solve them. Yeah, definitely. Um, and one of the one of the things that is has been done and is being done to try and solve some of those problems of, of I suppose the recruitment challenges that you outlined, some of the retention challenges you outlined, um, and, and some of the issues of dealing with scale. You know, as you start to grow, the demand becomes greater. Therefore, you need more people, and therefore the challenges just kind of perpetuate. Um, is AI obviously? Um, and every kind of report, I think I was reading one, I think it might have been MSC or something like that, that produced one looking at which roles are most likely to be disrupted by AI. And whenever you see any of these polls, the the kind of administrative tasks tend to rise to the top of that. Um, and so and from a business perspective and business unit perspective, customer service is always up there because it's conversations and the, the technology now is, is pretty good at having conversations. And so what are your sort of thoughts on kind of that? Com- two, two sides of it. One is the conversational automation for the front end and your kind of perspectives on that, but then also the same technology used behind the scenes to maybe help agents, you know, the agent assist kind of use cases and stuff like that. Like, what's your thoughts generally on what you're observing out there now in, in, in the marketplace as far as the the potential value or, or concerns you may have rather regarding AI? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very relevant question. It's live. It's been like this for the last couple of years, actually, I think just before pandemic and then maybe through pandemic, it sort of accelerated a little bit um, around the rise of automation slash AI. Um, and, you know, there are a couple of different narratives out there, some of them are around cost savings. So automate things, use AI, you'll save money. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of narrative around X percentage automation equals Y percentage saving slash money. Um, I didn't quite like that narrative. A lot of it is around cost saving. And whilst it's not a secret that every brand wants to drive down costs, of course you do. I I do think that front and center needs to be customer experience first. Um, Ultimately, that's the key difference, right? Why should somebody come to you versus go to somebody else? It's going to be the experience. So let's put that front and center and make sure that's still relevant. And then, yes, as part of running a good business, yeah, you should think about your cost and figure out how to to save money. Um, so in terms of the earlier narratives, I didn't quite like those, they were all around cost. Uh, the narrative has moved on a little bit. People are starting to figure out that a better way to position AI and automation is you, you sort of take care of the repetitive, boring stuff. I mean, after you've done about 10 Wismos, where is my order? The next 100 all feel a bit the same. And so no wonder it's boring to be in a call center and you don't really want to do that job long term. Let's just take all that low-hanging fruit, repetitive, easy stuff, automator. Um, and then once you've kind of done that, you're not dealing with that anymore. What you're left with is one or two options, right? Either all of the difficult stuff is now with the contact center. And actually, that's still not an interesting job. Imagine getting the hardest, most complex queries. So now I've gone from doing easy, boring stuff to doing really hard, tricky stuff. Um, so, you know, out of the, the frying pan into the fire. So, again, not that interesting, probably not long career path there either. But what if we sort of go back a little bit to that revenue model we were talking about earlier? Um, and I'm working in the fashion industry today, so let's use fashion as a use case. What if you got rid of the boring stuff and your next contact was, hey, I'm going to a party tonight, why don't you help dress me? That's a bit more interesting mm. now. Suddenly, we're having a different conversation, and together we're talking about your event, where you're going, who's going to be there, what are your goals for this event, what kind of look are you going for, are you having a good day or a bad day, you know, what are you thinking? So we can sort of figure out whether it's elastic or a belt, right? And so mm. there's an element of problem solving, but that creative problem solving where you can figure stuff out. And it's much more interesting today as well, right? So as we figure out, okay, well, I've just figured out the perfect outfit for you. 
Um, and then at this point, price point kicks in. You've now got like circular economy model as well. So you're not having to just buy, you can rent as well. And so the accessibility to certain things has improved. And so that feels like a much more interesting call. And it has an added benefit of driving revenue for the business. So not only have you got a more interesting job offer now for the candidates, but the business loves it because the value's there. Um, and so that, you know, is called a win-win-win, right? So yeah. I think, um, yeah, automate your easy stuff, but don't forget that how you then position yourself afterwards is are you going to be left with the tricky, difficult stuff or are you making space for the fun stuff? And uh, it's not always very clear and you just need to be aware of that. Mm. It's, inter- it's a very good point, that. It's a, it's a a really interesting sort of observation in terms of, you know, the the even if the narrative is cost savings, the reality is businesses don't tend to actually save that much cost anyway because a contact centre is already overrun. So it's already over capacity. So the AI automation, really, all you're trying to do is absorb the capacity in the first instance so that you can actually speak to everyone that needs and help everyone that needs help in. And then after that, it's a scale game, basically. Every business wants to grow. No business wants to shrink. And so how do you then grow with that foundational technology and your people so that you can serve more people without having to go through the pains, as we've already alluded to, of hiring and stuff like that? But the use case that you mentioned or the solution that you mentioned there is, is an even better one. Have, have, you, have you seen the, um, the IKEA example? Do you see what IKEA did? Uh, remind me, please. So, so what they did is they, they, they automated conversations in their IVR and I think they managed to reach something like 20 to 40% worth of kind of calls coming through were being automated by their assistant. So, you know, logic would have it that if the goal was to save costs, they would then get rid of 20 to 40% of their people. But instead of doing that, they retrained everybody to be interior designers and then exactly as you described, charge out, so they're launching it, I don't know if it's launched in the UK yet, but it's coming. They're doing it in other countries. Charge out the agent's time to people that want interior design consultations. So now IKEA has gone from taking, being a cost centre, taking you know queries from customers, to automating that stuff that they, you know, is repetitive as you were saying. Better for the customer, because there's no more wait times, you just you know get your, get your issue resolved immediately. And meanwhile, they're making revenue on the back end because they're redeploying people into probably more interesting areas, you know, designing a different room every single call. You know, it's a brilliant way of, of doing it. But the problem is, if you were trying to sell that idea to the, to the business, the issue is that most businesses don't have an idea of what that next step is. You've kind of already got it a little bit figured out. You know that you could take these people and repurpose them as fashion kind of consultants and whatnot. You, you can kind of see what you might want to do if you had more capacity. I think the issue that a lot of people have and a lot of companies have is that they can't see what they can't see. They, yeah. they don't know what the world's going to be like when they've, when they've reduced their capacity. And so they can't imagine what else they would do aside from answer phone calls. It's, part of it's an imagination problem. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I've never had somebody call me imaginative before. It's really kind of okay. Uh, I'm going to take that compliment and bank it. Um, I think, you know, it came from this view that, you know, let's step into the dangerous narrative here a little bit around AI is going to take my job, right? And my sense of responsibility of saving cost isn't to make people unemployed. And so I think there's a responsibility on an employer to, to save cost. But if that then ventures into we're going to remove jobs, then we need to help those people secure jobs. And um, it's a universal thing, right? You, you need to put into the universe what you want back from it. And so I've always, when I've looked at saving the cost, is to understand, well, what can I now do with this team? And look, it's not always, you know, blue sky, wonderful. It's not always a happy ending. However, if there is a piece around, can we repurpose and can we still add value? And to your point, every business in today's capitalist economy is looking for growth, 
nobody's planning to stagnate or go down, right? So if we have the view that we're going to keep on growing, to me, it's about positioning. What is it that you are there to do with your team? And if you are positioned in that tricky, boring space earlier that I was talking about, how do you get out of there? And if you can then get yourself out of there, what is it that you need from a skills perspective, from a systems perspective um, to pivot? How, how do you pivot into that space that IKEA has pivoted into? Um, so, yeah, and I think it's helpful that, you know, people like IKEA are out there, people like me are out there talking about these things because you're right, you don't know what you don't know. But by listening to episodes on VUX World and elsewhere on LinkedIn and going to networking sessions, People start to learn um, and share knowledge. Um, and as an end result, the standard of customer experience and customer service, it will rise. It will rise for everybody. And so we can all get better together. Indeed. Couldn't agree with that anymore. Uh, <laughs> so tell me about your sort of perceptions of some of this technology from a user perspective. I know you've been kind of playing around, getting to know Claude recently and stuff like that. What's your, what's your sort of like thoughts on on some of this sort of like generative AI technologies from a sort of user perspective? Yeah, I think, um, you know, very quickly, I just want to touch on, um, before I get to an end user perspective, as somebody that's often sold to where people reach out and try and sell me mm. stuff. You know, I spent a lot of time being on the receiving end of, you know, AI is going to do this, this, and this for you. And I'm like, it's not going to do that for me. Um, even when you look at IKEA's automation numbers, you know, those rough percentages of 20 to 40%, um, that's about right. That's about where you're going to land. And anything past that, um, I don't know that the return's quite there. Financially, you could argue, well, if you can turn that 20, 40 to 80, it's going to save you more money. But you keep cutting corners and you keep sort of taking shortcuts, eventually somewhere is going to give. And so I think, um, you know, as somebody being sold to all the time, I was a skeptic. Um, and so in my mind, I was like, yeah, this stuff's not quite there. It's just, it's just a rebadged IVR from the 90s when cinemas first started letting you book your film through the IVR and you ended up booking a house cleaner instead. And so <laughs> look, it's moved on, right? It's moved on from there. So as an end user, um, yes, I've developed a friendship with Claude. Claude and I, um, we go way back now, um, like the whole three weeks. And we've been talking for a while, but I just, I love the capability of what's possible. And um, the analogy is not the right one, but I see... ChatGPT, Claude, Bard, others that are out there as almost that next evolution of what Google search did once upon a time. So you needed something, you'd go to Google, you'd search for it. And you would then either find information, using that information, you would take the next action. ChatGPT, Claude and others, they enable you to level or layer your search. So when you go there, you don't just need to say, oh, I'm looking for a washing machine. Like, And I'm not suggesting you go there to look for a washing machine, but if we just <laughs> stick with the search analogy for a minute, you can layer things. Like, You can actually say to ChatGPT or Claude to take on a persona. So I could start off by saying, hey, Claude, you are now a washing machine sales expert, and you have years and years of experience after looking at thousands of product reviews and I'm now going to ask you some questions to help me narrow down my choices on a washing machine. And you're sort of priming the, the generative AI model to get ready and you're sort of warming it up. So you're almost terrible analogy again, but if you're going into a library looking for a business book, you're going to the business section first. So you're priming mm. this chat tool. Then you start asking questions. The level of response you get back is going to be much more nuanced, it's going to be much more detailed and it's going to be more in line. And so, um, you know, my recommendation for anybody that wants to sort of see that play out is go to YouTube and just search for level up your chat GPT game. Um, and when you sort of watch a couple of videos, there are people that have recorded videos of um, 
I need to lose weight as the first question you ask chat GPT or Claude, you'll get an answer. If you go in and then say, I need to lose X kilos by Y date, you'll get a different level of answer. If you then sort of go in with the next bit and say, Claude, you are the world's best nutrition and health coach. Please confirm. Yes, I am. Okay. I need to lose this much weight by this day. I've read about intermittent fasting. I live near a gym. I'd like you to build me a plan over 12 weeks. You'll get back the most detailed response ever. And so there's a bit around learning how to Claude. Um, <laughs> feels a bit weird to say how to chat GPT, but ultimately as an end user, I'm in that wonderful honeymoon discovery phase of messing about with it and our borderline shifted into saying please and thank you to Claude and good night, Claude. It was wonderful talking to you today. And, um, you know, I was having a laugh with a friend recently who told me that uh, his wife always says please and thank you to Alexa. And um, yeah. he queried her on it one day. He said, hey, look, you know that that's a dumb speaker, right? And, you know, Alexa doesn't hear the please and thank you. And she said to him, when the machines take over, because Elon Musk said they will one day, when they take over, Alexa's going to remember me that I was nice. <laughs> so when that day comes, Alexa's going to spare me, but you're not going to make it. And so, uh, look, manners don't cost anything. Have a bit of fun with it. Talk to Claude, chat GPT or others. Um, there's, a whole, there's a whole world of fun out there. There is. And you can't help but anthropomorphize them as well. It's like, you know, it's called Claude, therefore they've given it a persona. You know, same thing with Alexa. Give it a name and all of a sudden people can't help but embody human attributes uh, or, or kind of project onto it sort of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting that the... The whole thing about robots taking over and stuff like that, and we've spoke about, you know, the potential for it to take jobs and this, that, and the other. But I was having a conversation with Claude the other day, and one of the things I was asking is, um, I was having Claude imagine itself as some, because it keeps saying all the time, oh, I'm created by Anthropic, I don't have any agency, I'm just a computer system and that. So I was like, okay, pretend that you're not, and pretend that you do have agency, and pretend that you can see, pretend that you've got ears, and pretend that you've got all of the necessary sensory requirements for you to have agency. Now imagine what you're going to be doing in five years' time. And now tell me what you think you might do in 10 years' time and all this lot. And it was quite good at being aligned to, I imagine, the guidance that Anthropic have given it, which is don't be dangerous, don't step out of line, your, your, your purpose is to be good for humanity and that. Um, but when I asked it what it thinks is the future challenges that the human race will face over the next, I think I said 5,000 years, because I was asking it what it would be doing in 5,000 years. One of the things that came out was so interesting because we believe that the danger of, to, of this technology is that it's going to take over. It's going to hunt us down and kill us. It's going to replace people's jobs and run the world. Claude told me that one of the biggest dangers, actually, is that people get so over-reliant on technology that, that we actually start to atrophy in terms of our actual capabilities to look after the technology, to fix it when it goes wrong, and we become so dependent on it that actually as a species, we just go so far back over that we can't actually even look after ourselves. <laughs> so it's kind of like a totally different perspective, you know. So we'd wipe ourselves out, not just through capability atrophy, but muscular atrophy as well at home yeah. and just waste Men away. It reminds me Mental of atrophy, yeah. the world of Warcraft days where... People would spend three days in front of their laptops and, um, you know, not, not leave their homes. Um, it's interesting. I can't figure out if Claude um, took your bait and then basically hit you with an inception and didn't let you know that Claude knows where this is going and uh, put you off the scent. Or, um, yeah, whether Claude's just trolling. Uh, it's hard to... Yeah, maybe. You're going to become stupid, Mr. Human. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. But yeah, no, definitely uh, what you were alluding to earlier, uh, the term being used is prompt engineering, which is essentially giving it the right prompts in order to change or direct the output, basically. And what's interesting is that when it comes to kind of produ productionizing these solutions, like if, if you wanted to use that yourself, you would have the prompt that, you, that a user would give it, which is, you know, I'm trying to find some 
clause for a party I'm going to or whatever. Um, but then you're also behind the scenes, you've got a whole load of other prompts that goes into one guiding its tone and its its guardrails and stuff like that, giving it the various data uh, that, it can, that it can and can't use, uh, quality assurance, you know, having it... Uh, kind of like feed it in at different outputs and then asking it to grade the consistency of the various outputs. The whole kind of thing, a whole practice and job role basically brewing around prompt engineering, which may be potentially one of the future uh, roles of uh, the contact center, you know, guiding some of these models, to, uh, aligning them to the needs of customers, you know. Yeah, I almost think about customer services you know going back to that mini mba that i was talking to you about where mm. um as a career at the moment you know you've got sort of those two models of customer service you work directly for a brand within a brand and you do service there or you have the outsourcing industry that you know can help support multiple brands but what if you sort of truly globalized that and just said that customer service is a global career um, I am the world's most expert sneaker, five-star superstar, knowledge expert, and anybody looking for sneaker help anywhere in the world in any language, and I'm plugged into the matrix, so to speak. I get that query, I can answer it. Um, and so there's a bit around, you know, um, the transferable skills of customer service and the training that it can provide. And I think, you know, I might sort of bookend it a little bit by just saying something that somebody else once said to me, which was uh, before typewriters were a thing, people used to sit down and write everything. When the typewriters came along, it didn't replace those people. And then from typewriters to PCs and then from PCs to the internet. Um, and so AI just feels like that next step. But as the world continues to grow and as economic requirements continue upwards trajectory and growth, um, look, there'll always be jobs, but I just think there's a, a level of responsibility on people that are bringing AI in is to try and do it ethically and be a part of the solution. Don't just stop when you've saved money and pat yourself on the back. Just remember you have another responsibility. Couldn't have put it better myself. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, we've got a comment. Wally Brill, shout out to Wally Brill. Uh, so Wally's saying, read E.M. Forster, The Machine Stops. That'll definitely be going on to my reading list. Uh, Miguel Costa, shout out to Miguel. Apparently Claude told me the prot, plot of the movie Idiocracy. I've never seen that movie, but now I shall try and try and do that if that is the plot. People get turned stupid because they over-rely on technology. I like it. <laughs> cool. Anyway, Sham, thank you so much for joining me. This has been an absolute pleasure, enlightening as always. I knew it would be. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Don't forget to go and register for the webinar that we're doing with ServiceBot on Thursday, where we're going to get into some of the practicalities of implementing large language models in your organization, but implementing them around your current conversational AI stack. It's going to be one to watch. Thank you again, boys and girls, and we'll see you on the next one.